Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 10 and the Russians are about to launch their second attempt at invading Finland. And this time they're going to significantly alter their strategy and their tactics. The Stavka back in Moscow had inserted new commanders, demoted failures and were now determined to recover lost initiative. The Red Army had lost numerous battles and lost face in the full view of the Germans. This winter war lasted 105 days from November 1939 until March 1940, but its ramifications for world history cannot be overstressed. Hitler saw how the handful of Finns bludgeoned one of the world's superpowers, crushed them in the early rounds of attacks, repulsed them repeatedly, and in many ways Finland's treatment of the Russians reinforced the German fascists' mistaken belief that if they kicked in the USSR's front door, the entire edifice of communism would collapse. Thus, the Reich's own invasion of Russia, which was to take place in 1941, Operation Barbarossa. While the Russian invasion in the far north of Finland had literally frozen to a halt, in the south around Lake Ladoga and even further south in the Karelian Isthmus, the Red Army had retrained and by early February 1940 they were ready for the big push. Part 2. Lieutenant General Hugo Osterman directed the Finnish army of the Isthmus. A quick revisit here. His army was split into two groups. In the west, around Vipuri, was 2nd Army Corps under Lieutenant General Harald Ochwist, while the eastern half was held by 3 Army Corps under Major General Heinrichs. The Taipali sector was inside Heinrichs' zone of command. It had been fought over ferociously since the start of the Winter War. The Russians had reformed the disgraced Leningrad military district as the northwestern front, led by General Timoshenko. You heard about him last episode. And working with him was General Zhdanov, who we also met in episode 9. Timoshenko had instituted his new plan. He began a long bombardment of the Finnish positions starting in late January, building up to a crescendo in early February, which would be a precursor to a full-scale assault by the Red Army at certain points along the Isthmus. Factoring into Timoshenko's thinking was something bloodthirsty that the Finns could not afford to lose as many men as he could. He was going to try to bleed the Finns white, to quote a First World War logic. The Battle of Verdun has case in point. It was late in January 1940 when the Finns began to have an inkling of what was in store for them. They had a relatively weak air force in terms of pure power, and the Russian air force bombed and strafed their positions almost at will. The Finnish air force tried to send recon flights over the Russian build-up, but this was almost suicidal, the anti-aircraft and other defences were so thick on the ground. On the morning of February 1st, a single Finn air recon aircraft managed to thread its way through these awaiting guns and zigzag past Russian planes to make a hasty photo run over the forward Russian positions in front of Suma, which is now part of Russia and called Soldatskoya, roughly translated as soldier's place. The lake nearby called Sumajavi had added a layer of complexity to the Russian advance and shoehorned coming attacks into a specific area just north of that lake. The village of Suma was a gateway to the city of Vipuri. Finnish intelligence scoured the photographs and counted more than 200 pieces of artillery set in the open. No attempt at camouflage. These had appeared overnight. On the same day, the first the Russians opened up with these guns and survivors on the Finnish side described an iron wall of sound where the earth convulsed and two defenders that felt like the final days of Armageddon had arrived. 500 Russian planes were counted overhead, bombing Finnish positions and strafing villages. The utter power and fury of this bombardment and attack 
eclipsed all other attacks, and the concentrated manor is regarded as the heaviest and most sustained aerial attack in the history of warfare up to that point. It eclipsed even the Germans' Blitzkrieg, it was so intense. Very quickly the Finnish system of support began to break down, all their kitchens were smashed, the blockhouses turned to dust, trenches collapsed, even the deepest telephone cables were ripped to pieces. While that was all new, what wasn't was the Russian commander's propensity to send their men into meat grinders. Timoshenko is a hero in Russia, but his technique was more like a blacksmith indulging in thuggery than a surgeon slicing open his enemy. The attacks turned into probing ventures where the Russian commanders tried to overcome one strong point after another, searching for a weakness on the Finnish side. Timoshenko believed that his constant Western Front World War I-style industrial strength artillery bombardment 24-7 would eventually break down the Finnish resolve. While the Red Army ground assault ended formally at dusk on February 1st, the guns did not fall silent. The defenders were unable to snatch even a few minutes sleep because they'd be pulled in to help rebuild some of the damaged bunkers or to lie up against the shattered trenches looking out for night raiders. The Finns tried to recapture lost positions that first night. Others were drafted in to help pull supplies to the front line and the reserve troops just behind the front line were rotated in. This rotation which used to take a week or two, now took a few days, sometimes a few hours. The Russians repeated this medicine on February 2nd and February 3rd, increasing the strength of their assaults and widening the zones of attack on the Summa front. More than 400 shells a minute were raining down on the Finns here. Fighting was fierce at the village of Summa itself. Some of the trenches changed hands half a dozen times over the next 24 hours. More than 1,000 Russian dead were counted lying in the snow around this village by February 3rd. The Finns had been deafened, their senses bludgeoned by the force of the Russian bombardment, their nerves deadened, their steel-reinforced bunker walls cracking. It was now one of the weaknesses of the Mannerheim line began to be exposed. The gun emplacements which had been sunk into the ground were not deep enough. Massive explosions had wrought havoc upending some of these concrete positions. Some of them were lifted up at odd angles. The Finnish guns could no longer be placed inside these strong points. The concrete foundations hadn't been sunk deeply enough. The walls weren't thick enough. No one had forecast such a massive display of Russian artillery power, and the positions were also too far from each other to offer support when the Red Army surged over the open ground towards them. The Russians lost at least 90 tanks here over the next few days. The Finns just did not have enough anti-tank munitions, however, to deal with the flood of armour surging over their forward positions. Finnish machine gunners were mowing down hundreds of Russians a day, and yet still they came. Sometimes entire companies would be mowed down as they assaulted the Mannheim line. The fanatically brave Soviet soldiers just could not be stopped. Rows and rows of Red Army dead began to pile up in lines, creeping ever closer to the Finnish defences. Hand-to-hand combat became the order of the day, vicious little local fights, like small towns going at it with knives, fists, bayonets, rifle butts, bits of concrete. For the first six days of this battering, the Mannerheim line held by a miracle of finished tenacity. The defenders were operating on automatic now and had to be pushed into position by their officers, who were blowing whistles and slapping laggards as the bombardment ceased indicating another assault by Red Army ground troops was imminent. On February 6th, 
A relatively fresh Russian division took aim at the Finns along the Johannes Highway, but were met by an accurate barrage that shocked the Soviet infantry. The Red Army battalions collapsed. The Russians were routed. Soldiers ran straight through their own political commissars who were trying to shoot the retreating men who just brushed them aside and kept going. But General Orquist's 3rd Division had been at the receiving end of these bouts of Russian assaults for more than two weeks and had enough. Divisional commanders were appealing for the 5th Division to switch positions with the 3rd. 5th Division officers were nervous because there was a real fear that their HQ commander, General Mannerheim, would order them forward in battalion-sized units instead of in full force. The aging general, meanwhile, was trying to avoid just that. The 5th was the last unit he had at his disposal to defend Vipuri, the main city on the western side of the Isthmus. Should that fall, the Russians would be able to turn west towards Helsinki. There was a failure to properly address what was going on and was going to be critical. The senior officers behind the lines always regarded reports of weakness and tiredness of the frontline divisional commanders as something of an exaggeration. This preconceived notion by the Finns about what construed a breakthrough meant that when a lethal penetration was going to take place shortly, they'd failed to realize how critical it was at first. For the moment, however, the line was holding, although the Red Army was not chipping away bunker by bunker, gnawing at the Finns like fanatical rats. Meanwhile, Finland's political leadership was desperately trying to start peace talks behind the scenes. Foreign Minister Vaino Tana had virtually set up camp in Stockholm, where he held a series of meetings with Russia's Swedish ambassador, Alexandra Kolontai. An unusual figure in this war, Alexandra, as a woman, was trying chiefly to stop Sweden from formally entering the war on Finland's behalf. But she was able to pass on messages to Stalin from Tana. Stalin was more than frustrated, at one point sending a note back via Kolontai stating something along the lines that either the Finnish bourgeoisie, as he called them, make concessions, or the Russians would impose a government on you which will disembowel you. For Stalin, like the modern-day Tsar Vladimir Putin, history carried much weight from Byzantine monks to foreign interventions during the Crimean War halfway through the 19th century. The combined historical foes of Sweden, Turkey and Poland loomed large in Joe Stalin's mind, but he drew satisfaction from knowing how Peter the Great had dealt with these threats. Strangely enough, at this point, Stalin had miscalculated the threats based on his paranoia about the West. He convinced himself the imminent support of the Finns would throw his plans to crush Finland into disarray. London and Paris were not as sanguine, though, as he presumed. On the eve of his attack on Finland, Stalin assessed the Western threat as too low. But after this first month of war in Finland, he now assessed the threat as too high. He was conforming to Clausewitz's prognostications about those who fight and tend to exaggerate the threats facing them. The British intelligence office had been conducting a whispering campaign to accentuate Stalin's fears. Foreign Office Head of Political Intelligence Rex Lieper, for example, warned the Turkish general staff to prepare for what he called ground actions at a later date. When Stalin got to hear about that, he naturally believed the plan. The Russians have long been utterly paranoid about the British. And to this day, Moscow likes to go play inside the United Kingdom, sending its poisoners into Cambridge, for example, to try to kill former spies. It's like a generational rite of passage for Russian spooks. So at this very moment, early 1940, 
the Russians were experiencing popular resistance and restlessness in their south, in Chechnya, Dagestan and Tajikistan. Communist International Secretary Georgi Dimitrov probably pinned down the very night that Stalin changed his mind about the Finnish war. That was in the Bolshoi Theatre on the 21st of January 1940. Stalin was explaining the war to his Politburo members in the theatre and said the Finns had major backers, a kind of code word for the British. But they'd be crushed, he said. Moments later, an event took place which belied the very location, a theatre. Deputy Defence Commissar Georgi Kulik brought bad news, believed to be a military intelligence threat from Baku in the Caucasus. Baku was the source of most of Russia's all-important oil, and Moscow was extremely sensitive about any information emanating from there. Stalin had been growing more excessive when it came to oppression. He had only just ordered the execution of more than 450 prominent Russians, including former Commissar of Internal Affairs Nikolai Yezov and author Itzhak Babel. Another was journalist Mikhail Kolstov, who would be brought back to life later that year by Ernest Hemingway as the character Karkov in his brilliant novel For Whom the Bell Tolls. Intelligence reports from London further exacerbated Stalin's and the Stavka's misplaced views. During the first half of January 1940, Stalin's emissary there, Maisky, had maintained the line that the British were cleverer than the French, his words, folks, and wouldn't intervene in Finland in full force. But a powerful radio broadcast on the 20th of January by Winston Churchill flipped that opinion, where the British Prime Minister told his nation that only Finland's superb, nay, sublime, shows what free men can do. Maisky then sent a long letter to Russian Foreign Minister Molotov saying time had run out. London was going to send material aid to Finland. Suddenly, on the 29th of January, the Russians informed the Swedes that in principle there was no obstacle to contacts with the Helsinki government. London's whispering campaign appeared to pay off. But where there's smoke, there's fire, they say. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. In the spirit of this unwritten rule, on the 5th of February, the Allied Supreme War Council decided they would send troops to Scandinavia with the main expeditionary force to land at Narvik. The plan was to take hold of the Swedish iron ore fields an advanced force of 15,000 would then head towards northern Finland. This was all super secret and hush-hush, of course. However, it was the British mutterings at the same time to the Turks about the real Soviet weakness that worried the hell out of Stalin and his pals in the Stavka. The USSR reliance on the Caucasus oil supply. Once Stalin got wind of the Brit mutterings, it prompted him to seek an early peace with Finland. Molotov sought British mediation for the Finnish war, and all that they wanted, said the Russian foreign minister, was a return to Peter the Great's border of 1721. Considering Russia's initial plan was to install a puppet government in the whole of Finland, that was a come-down indeed. But obviously, for the Finns, that would not do. The Germans, meanwhile, heard about all of this, and they had been eyeing the Swedes' iron ore. It was the next diplomatic move that led to the renewal of the assault on the Karelian Isthmus proper on the 11th of February. That was the day the Soviets signed another major economic treaty with the German Reich, which would sharply decrease the economic significance of Finland for Berlin. That in turn meant that Berlin wouldn't feel obligated to attack Scandinavia and thereby become a threat for Russia. But the massive attacks, which began on the 11th, 
had a twofold motivation. First was to force the Finns to swallow the new severe Peter the Great border condition, and the second was to recover some Soviet pride. Almost one million Soviet soldiers were lining up to renew the struggle against Finland, 40% of the USSR's total military manpower at that time. Coming next, an escalation of the bombing and the shelling that was going to turn parts of Finland into the moonscape that had been the Western Front between 1914 and 1918. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog for more details about this episode and about my other shows. Until next, goodbye.